go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. And uh, if you've been with us over the past number of weeks, we've been framing this because this is the way that the language of this text dictates. We've been framing this section in Romans through a, a legal lens, a courtroom kind of drama has been unfolding before us where Paul is the prosecuting lawyer and he's putting all of humanity on trial. In a sense, we've been kind of looking at this like the jury, and we have been listening to the case that Paul presents, and now, in one sense, it's our opportunity to hear Paul's closing arguments and then to come forward with a verdict. But instead of turning to us, the jury, for the verdict, the judge, God Himself, in this passage, turns to the jury, turns to all those who are in the courtroom, and He looks directly at us and says, I am going to level the verdict, and the verdict that I am leveling is the verdict of guilty. And this verdict applies not only to this hypothetical individual that has been on the stand, it applies directly to you. You are guilty. You are the man. And in case we missed it, in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, he sums up here in this passage his entire argument. In this closing statement, he levels God's verdict upon humanity, the verdict of guilty. Listen to what he says, verse 9. He says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here he presents this verdict, and then he presses this guilty verdict into our hearts with the hope that we both understand and embrace this verdict in order that we might be spared its consequences. 
He majors on the bad news. Listen, this is so important. The, like, why, why have we been spending so much time talking about sin? Why is Paul spending so much time talking about sin, sin, sin? We've heard enough about sin, but Paul says to us, listen, you cannot understand grace until you understand sin. You cannot appreciate and value what God has offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you get what you're being saved from. And he presents the verdict here as if it's crystal clear, and this is what the gospel does. It gives so much clarity, not only on who God is, on what God expects, but on who we are and what we deserve. And since God's verdict is clear, I want to show you three responses from this text. First, I must acknowledge my actual condition. My actual condition, not the condition I want to be true, not even the condition I think might be true, but my actual condition, the condition that God says is true. Now, I'm personalizing these, these points for us here because Paul has universalized this principle. Paul is saying this is true of the entire world, which means this, it is true of every single one of us that's here this morning. His point is that there are no exclusions. Every one of us has to come to grips with our sinful condition, the disposition of our heart, our natural fallen condition. The reason this is important this morning is because we're often like um, the man, and I emphasize man here, who knows something is physically wrong with him but refuses to go to the doctor. Any of you guys like that here? Full confession, that's me, right? Something's wrong but it can't be that bad. I'll just self-diagnose and self-prescribe and self-treat. Oftentimes, we refuse to go to the doctor because we're actually afraid of what the diagnosis is going to reveal. And that is exactly what humanity is like. They don't want to go to the doctor. They don't want to hear from God because deep down inside, there is this inherent fear that what they hear is going to be far worse than what they think is true. Verse 9, Paul picks up from where he left off. What then? Are the Jews any better off? What advantage do the Jews have? Plenty, he told us last week. But are we then any better off because of these advantages? No, he says, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Paul uses this phrase here. And it's, it's so important. He uses this phrase, under sin. Paul shows, and he's been showing us, that the Jews did have a great advantage, but that advantage, it cannot secure salvation. It cannot bring you exemption from judgment. Listen, there's a great advantage. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's a great advantage. Kids, kids, if you are growing up in a Christian home, there is a great advantage that you have today. You are privileged to be sitting in a home with parents who know God and love God. You're privileged to be surrounded by a family of God. You're privileged to have the Word of God, but those things in and of themselves do not save you. They do not mean that you're saved just because you hold near to you those privileges. You do have an advantage, Paul says, but you are no better off than the Gentiles because you are both of the same condition. You are under sin. Circle that phrase in your Bible. Paul uses this phrase to describe the state or condition of humanity as a result of the fall. 
of Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden, in the rebellion against God, the curse that was leveled upon humanity, everyone and everything is under sin. According to the Bible, every human being, every human being is in one of two conditions. You're either under sin or you're under grace. The Bible uses different language to describe those same conditions, but at the heart of it, they're the exact same thing. The fundamental state of humanity is to be under sin. You see, what exactly does this mean? It means this, that all humanity by nature is under the penalty of sin, under the power of sin, and under the pollution of sin. Let me say that again. All of humanity, without exception, is under the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the pollution of sin. It infects every part of our being and every part of our existence. And the verdict of the Bible is that this is the truth that everybody who has been born into this world since the fall must embrace. We are all born under sin. Children are not born innocent. They are born with the guilt of Adam's guilt upon them. We are held captive to sin, a slave to sin. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John 8, verse 34. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This language is so vivid, and yet at the same time, it's incredibly offensive to people. A slave to sin? And it's offensive because deep down inside, every one of us loves, listen, we love to hold on to this truth that we believe is true. We are free. We love the, the, the concept of freedom. We love the idea of independence and autonomy. Our motto, our mantra is, nobody tells me what to do. I am the captain of my own ship. I determine my own fate. But a slave cannot do whatever they want. They are under the control of another and must do what the slave master, in this case, sin, demands. And sin, according to the Bible, affects every thought, every motive, and every action. The, the symptoms may vary from person to person, but the disease at its core is the exact same. And the depravity of man is total, and Paul now shows us how this depravity is universal. It applies to every single person. And to prove this universal verdict, Paul does something so fascinating and so powerful here. He lets God do the talking. This is why this isn't Paul's verdict. This is why it's not my verdict or your verdict. This is God's verdict. And this verdict is crystal clear. So what he does is Paul now is going to go back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures inspired by God Himself, and he is going to systematically link passages together and show unequivocally the universality of sin that has infected all of humanity. He says in verse 10, in case there's any misunderstanding, just listen to the language, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. It's hard to come up with a, a different understanding of this passage, isn't it? 
Now, I just want to point out to, to uh, maybe by way of application, Paul here is teaching us something incredibly important about our own evangelism and the way we ought to, in many regards, present the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches us here is that we need to force people to wrestle with God, not with us. To wrestle with God's words, not with our words, primarily. Paul strings together God's word in such an intentional and powerful way. And and listen, he could do that because he knew God's word. He understood God's word. He had memorized God's word. He had believed in the authority of God's word. And church, listen, we need to know God's word so thoroughly so deeply. We need to be so saturated in the Word of God that we can walk people through texts clearly to show them what God says about them and their soul and their condition. First, Paul quotes from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. That psalm, by the way, begins with this statement, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul says, look what God says about you and about all of humanity. There's none, there's no one, none are righteous, all, all have sinned. And he begins to break it down into different categories. No one is righteous. We've talked about righteousness a lot throughout this series so far. And I think it's just important to note, listen, we oftentimes are confused about righteousness because we think of sin primarily in sociological categories. In other words, we think about sin in how it hurts other people or, or doesn't help other people. We think of sin primarily, first and foremost, as horizontal when sin is not first sociological, it is theological. Our sin is first and foremost against God and God alone. This is what David said. It's rebellion against God before it is ever hurting or not helping our fellow man. All sin is nothing more, as we've said throughout the series again, the de-godding of God. It is us placing ourselves above God. Sin at its root level is idolatry. All immorality, all sin flows from idolatry. We owe everything to God, and and we have failed to give Him what He deserves. We failed to give Him glory and honor, and we failed to thank Him for being who He is, for being the King and Creator of the universe. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Listen, sin is relational before it's behavioral. It's a relational brokenness before it's behavioral brokenness. Let me say it like this. No one breaks any of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first one, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sin makes us self-absorbed and self-centered. No one seeks God. You say, but I, I know people who are seeking God. No. No, you don't. They are seeking, listen, they're seeking stuff from God, but they're not seeking God Himself. They're seeking a better life. They're seeking maybe more inner peace. They're seeking maybe some fire insurance, 
Meanwhile, wanting to live however they, they want. They're seeking a spouse, maybe career advancement. They treat God as a means to an end. What can I get from you, God? That's why, listen, so many people, they're... they're their so-called faith crumbles when they don't get what they want from God, when they don't think God is answering the prayers they, they believe they're deserved to get from God. They fall apart at the seams because they, they've used God as a means to an end. But if we truly understand God, church, this is so important to understand. If we truly understand God, we know that God is the ultimate end. The best part about the gospel is that we get God. The best part about heaven is we get God. Seeking God means that you are trying to find God and to get into His presence. To seek God means to desire God above everything and everybody, to seek His glory and to live for His glory. To seek God biblically means that God is at the center of our thinking, and that's the supreme object of our lives, to know Him, to love Him. But we don't. We can't. We can't do this in any way, not in any way because of our natural condition. Together, we've all turned aside, we've become worthless. That's to say we have nothing to offer. We've all rebelled. And listen to this, no one does good. Now, there's an abrasive thought for our culture, isn't it? Not even one. Now, Paul here is not denying that we can conform and do good things. What he is denying here is that our good things are truly good in the sense that they can provide us any kind of spiritual hope and spiritual life and, and, and make us right with God. All of our good works are inevitably tainted before God because they are not built on the foundation of God and they're not done for the glory of God. And that inherently makes them sinful, no matter how good they look on the outside. Humanity's enslavement to sin is ultimately the reason that we cannot fix ourselves, that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot make ourselves right with God. It is the absolute inability to find our way to God. And while we are all inclined to look at others and the world and shake our fist, the Bible first calls each one of us to acknowledge my sinful condition. You cannot be saved until you recognize what you need to be saved from. I, I am guilty. Through and through, I am a sinner, and I need to be saved by the grace of God. And by the way, here's what this means for us. This means, if we grasp this as individuals, it means that there is no room for superiority. And this is what we love to do. At, at a human level, we love to compare ourselves against others. We love to make it seem like we're, we're not as bad as other people, and we rejoice in that. There's a kind of self-righteousness that is present in each one of our hearts in believing we're not as bad as other people. But here what we see, listen, is that the total universal depravity of man puts us all on equal footing. 
It means that the the religious, moral person is just as guilty as the wicked, murderous criminal. Inside, listen, inside, we all have the exact same problem. The universality of sin is the great equalizer. I am no better than anyone else. It is a humbling reality and a humbling thought, but it is so offensive and abrasive. I know some of you are wrestling in your heart right now. You're saying, Ian, are you telling me I'm no better than the the murderer on death row? It's exactly what I'm telling you. It's exactly what I'm telling you because your problem is the same as his problem. Your solution is the same as his solution. From the perspective of God, every one of us is guilty. We're in the same boat. And by the way, if you're inclined to look down your nose at somebody whose sin is greater than your sin, in your eyes, listen, the reality is, is the same potential lies in your own heart. All men are equal. All men are under sin. And here's what this also means, church. Listen, for this reason, every single conversion is radical. Everyone. There's nothing more amazing about one sinner getting saved than another sinner. Do you realize that? And I say that because we have this tendency, even in the church, to glorify certain kinds of testimonies, don't we? I heard this this week, speaking to a young woman who said to me, he's like, who's, who's kind of fearful about being baptized, and one of her fears is, my testimony is not that special. It's boring. We, we've come to believe that, that somehow the testimonies that matter most are the radical ones from our perspective. The, the person who was living a, a licentious life, they were a drug addict, they were on death's door, they're the prodigal son, and they come home, and we're all like, that's, that's a testimony. And we rejoice and we celebrate. But listen, church, listen, when somebody gets up and says in the waters of baptism, uh, you know what? I grew up in the church. I was religious. I had godly parents. I went to Pickering Christian School. I hit homeschool last week, so I thought it was only right. I was homeschooled. I, I went to Christian school. I grew up in the church. I, I, I was a moral person. And then, in a moment, God opened my eyes, and I realized I was a sinner. We should be like, oh my goodness, did you hear that? That's amazing. It's amazing that God could take us who are so sinful through and through, any one of us, and radically take us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. In fact, I could probably make an argument this morning for you that the more radical testimony is actually the moralist getting saved because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. You don't have to become an addict to become a Christian. Isn't that good news? You have to acknowledge your actual condition, regardless of your life. You're a sinner by nature, but not only that, you're a sinner by choice. So, secondly, Paul, he gives us God's verdict, this clear verdict, and since God's verdict is clear, I must admit my active participation. Paul drives the point deeper, pressing into both our words and our works. 
And he, again, strategically is stringing together this series of statements from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from Jeremiah 5.16, from Psalm 140, verse 3, and 5, verse 9, and 10, verse 7. He's, He's pulling mostly from the Psalms, by the way, and he's focusing first on our mouths. Did you notice that? Their throat, listen to this verse, verse 13, look down. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's like a viper, a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. You see the progression here? This is very, very strategic and intentional. You notice how he goes from their throat to their tongue to their lips? It's it's this progression, like something's bubbling up inside of us, and it is making its way out of our mouths. And the way he describes it is so vivid, and it's so ugly that the throat is like an open grave. Remember Jesus rebuking the Pharisees? You whitewashed tombs. You look really pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. You're sick. You're rotting. It smells putrid. It's a spiritual halitosis. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah is transported in a vision into the throne room of God, and he sees, he sees the blazing glory of God seated upon the throne. And do you remember what he says? It's so fascinating. He cries out, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm undone. Why? Listen to what he says. For I am a man of unclean, what? Lips. Why, why does Isaiah, why does Paul focus on the mouth and the lips? The simple answer is because words are a window into the heart, into the soul. He's showing us inner corruption leading to outward manifestation. It's like the Gospels, Mark 7, verse 6, for example, on the screen behind me, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophecy of you hypocrites as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Or Matthew 12, verse 34, one you're likely familiar with, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is supposed to be understood in light of what Paul has already communicated, what he's already said, that our hearts were made to worship God, to praise God, to love God, like the seraphim who surround the throne, who night and day praise God and say, holy, holy, holy. But sadly, we know what it's like to live in a world where words are used like daggers. We know not only because those words have been flung into us and used against us, but because we have done the very same thing to others. We bite and we devour, we gossip and we slander, we curse. And with the same mouth that curses, we turn around and bless God. And you see Paul reasons here from sick speech to a corrupt inner person. The toxic language springs from a malignant heart. 
And it's interesting that these quotes, by the way, come from the Psalms. If you were to go back, and, and by the way, I would encourage you to go back and look at these Psalms in their original context, one of the things you see is this, that these Psalms are written on, from, from the perspective of Israel and looking at and condemning their enemies. What's so fascinating is that Paul takes these and says this, it's basically God in the position of the psalmist, and he says to the enemies of Israel, you're the same people. These, these psalms that you think speak against the Gentiles and, and against the wicked evildoers, Paul says they speak about you. And none of us are off the hook. We've all been guilty of speaking in, in sinful ways. We understand this. This is, this is a regular occurrence in our lives. And just consider this. The, the remnants of sin still remain in our lives, continuing to prove God's verdict and our helplessness. Even, consider this, loved ones, even with new hearts and God's indwelling presence, the Spirit of God within us, we are still guilty on a regular basis of saying wicked things and doing great acts of violence. He he moves from their words to their works. And he says, their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Our words and our works deeply affected. Paul quotes here from Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, and he describes here humanity's propensity towards violence. Fallen humanity has wickedness that not only remains in the heart, but it gushes out and gives birth to violence and murder. It's the Christmas season, right? Everybody ready? Trees up, lights up, everybody's getting excited. Christmas season is a a sweet season where we're supposed to reflect on peace, right? It's a season of peace and joy and road rage, Where you go to the mall and the sweetest, most fragile-looking mother of infants can fly into a fit of murderous rage over a parking spot. We lose it at the littlest things. And the reason here, look at this, the way of peace they have not known, where there is no peace with God, there cannot be lasting peace with one another. And he summarizes now the chief problem and the reason for sinful humanity. It is right here in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the de-godding of God. They will not turn to God and give God what He is due. Glory, honor, thanksgiving, worship. An honest assessment of our lives and of our world proves, proves Paul's case and forces us to admit our active participation as sinners. We are not just sinners by nature, we are sinners by choice. And once I truly admit to that, I must then, third and finally, accept my appropriate condemnation. That's where he's pushing us to. He's trying to get us to a place where we can understand why God's condemnation and verdict upon humanity is right and just and appropriate. In verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He summarizes everything he has just said. 
The law of God, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, teaches that there is only one God. He created all things and all peoples. He does not have different religions. There are not many different paths of salvation for different groups. There are not different scriptures. What God's law describes and prescribes applies to the whole of humanity here. And that means one thing, that everyone is accountable and no one has an excuse. Everyone is guilty. Having the law and even attempting to do the law doesn't justify anyone, verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified, will be made right in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin here does not simply mean that the law defines sin for us, though it does do that, but it is actually meant to give people an understanding of sin as power that holds everyone in bondage and holds everyone under guilt and condemnation. It presents us with the demand of God in our constant failure to attain the goal of that demand, and we recognize ourselves to be sinners and justly, appropriately, under the condemnation of God. See, why is Paul telling us this? Why is it necessary that we present the gospel this way, that we talk about sin so much? People need to know the bad news about sin, listen, according to this scripture here, so that every mouth may be stopped. We love to make excuses, don't we? When we're confronted in sin, think about this, when we're confronted in sin, we love to make excuses. We love to defend ourselves, we love to justify, we love to vindicate, we, vindicate. we love to turn the tables and point the figure at somebody else. We do this all the time, by the way, every one of us. It, it, just think about the last argument you had, okay? Think about the last argument you lost, even though you think you won. What did you do the moment you walked away from that argument? I know what you did, because I do it too, all the time. I replayed the entire argument ahead, and I came up with a whole bunch of different arguments that would have just destroyed somebody. Right? You do that? D.A. Carson, he, he once uh, said this, I've lost many arguments, but I've never lost a replay. <laughs> we don't want to admit our guilt. We don't like acknowledging that we're wrong. We don't like the fact that we are as bad as God says we are. Because ultimately, we don't want to accept what we actually deserve. But when we come face to face with the truth, with the clear verdict of God, there's only one thing to do. Listen, this is big. Shut my mouth. Close my mouth. There's nothing to say. And God's design, and if we understand sin clearly, is just that, that we all stand before the law of God, we all stand before this holy and righteous God, and what we realize is we have nothing, nothing to say. Everything He has said is right and true and just. Like Isaiah, who cries out, the only thing he can say when confronted with the glory of God, woe is me, I am ruined, 
The law makes the whole world accountable to God. It doesn't merely render people silent. It declares them liable to punishment. It renders God's just verdict on all of humanity, the wrath of God. And here is why God's verdict is so clear, so sweeping, and so severe, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. No one is or ever will be justified by obeying the law, because no one can observe the law the way that God requires us to deserve it, to be able to enter into His presence perfectly. The law doesn't save us. That's what Paul tells us so clearly here. It condemns us. It points out our absolute total inability. So Paul has set forth his case. God has leveled a clear verdict because of pervasive human depravity and sin. All are deserving of God's wrath. No human being possesses the righteousness God requires to be justified in His sight. So what hope do we have? That's what we're going to cover next week. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the law can't save us, but it points us to the one who can. It's a beautiful hymn called Rock of Ages, and I just want to read you a, a little bit of it. Listen to what it says. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. But, but you see, that's the very problem of humanity. We don't bring nothing. We try to bring something. We try to make ourselves right with God some way when God says there's nothing you can do. God says, listen, it's time to shut up, listen up, and look up. The law is pointing you to Christ, the promised seed of Abraham, the son of David, the only one who could fulfill the law perfectly, the one who took your condemnation, who stood in your place, who suffered and died for you, the one who bore the full weight of God's wrath so that we would never have to. Seek and find Him today is the answer of the Bible. Repent of your sins. Cry out for mercy. Trust in Jesus Christ and move from being under sin to under grace. But you said, Ian, you said earlier, no one seeks God. How can you now tell me to seek God? That's right. So let me close on a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says. He says this, If you and I can claim as Christians that we are seeking God, there is only one explanation for it, and that is that God has first sought us. Man in sin, under sin, does not seek God. Man by nature is a God-hater. He is at enmity with God. He is dead in trespasses and sins. Show me a man who can say honestly that he is seeking after God, and I will show you a man who has been quickened by God's Spirit, whom God has sought. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Left to ourselves, loved ones, listen, we would never seek him. But thanks be to God, out of his great love, listen, he has sought us. 
and those whom he seeks, he will surely find. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you, God, as we consider this truth in our own lives. God, if we are sitting here as followers of Jesus, it is only because of your grace. It is only because you loved us and you sought us out. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts with great wonder and awe, that we would be amazed at the the radical love that you have shown to us, the radical grace that you have lavished upon us. And God, for those in here today who maybe God don't know you for the first time or seeing their sin for what it is, the rebellion against you, deserving of punishment. God, I pray, I pray that you would so work in their heart now to break them down, that they would repent of their sin, that they would cling, Lord, 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 nothing to the cross of Christ I bring. Lord, only to the cross of Christ I cling. God, I pray that people would grab hold of you now in faith and rejoice in the grace that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.